Well, a respected legal scholar once asked a carpenter's son, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus of Nazareth replied, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. But Jesus didn't stop there. He went on to give the second greatest commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he went on to give the reason that these two commandments are the greatest, because all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So in this way, the incarnate God showed to us the beating heart of morality, love for God and love for neighbor. All the other commands that God has given in his word are ways of fulfilling those two primary commands, to love God and love our neighbor. And last week, as we looked at the book of Jephthah, we looked at it through the lens of that first great commandment, our love for God, and we saw a broken relationship between God and man in Jephthah's story. We saw in the people of Israel, including their leader Jephthah, an attempt to negotiate with and even manipulate God. And we saw how that's impossible. You can't negotiate with a God who owns everything and needs nothing. We saw how it's destructive. It does not please God, and it leads to the tragic sacrifice of Jephthah's own daughter. Her life was offered to God as a bribe. And this brings up a common theme, I think, comes back over and over in Scripture, that transgression of that first great commandment leads to transgression of the second A broken relationship with God expresses itself in broken relationships among human beings. Failure to love God leads to failure to love those who are made in his image. And so today I want to look at that same story of Jephthah, but through the lens of that second dimension, the second great commandment. Jephthah's failure uh, as a father... To put it mildly, his sacrifice of his daughter is a simultaneous failure in both commandments. If you think about it, he's offering God abominable worship, human sacrifice, and then he's also, of course, murdering his child. But both sides of that coin have a root in the attitude of the people in chapter 10 before we even meet Jephthah. We saw last week how in chapter 10, Israel attempts to manipulate God in their half-hearted repentance, how they, they try to begin by confessing with words, uh, and when that's not enough, they, they put actions. That's after God says no, they put away their idols. It's kind of a negotiation. Um, God says, no, I won't save you. We, we'd expect God to send a judge at that point in the story. That's what he's done before in Judges, but he doesn't. Here's what happens instead. This is in Judges chapter 10, starting in verse 17, which I believe is on page 211 in your pew Bible. If you are using the pew Bible, I I haven't memorized all the passages of Scripture according to their page number in the pew Bible, but I have a feeling it's 211. I haven't memorized any of them. I looked it up just a few minutes ago. but Verse 17. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? 
he shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So the enemy attacks again, and God is not sending a judge to deliver them at this point. So the people decide to find their own, and whoever they find, that's the person who's going to be in charge. Leadership is a common theme in Judges. The whole book is a big crisis of leadership. And you might be tempted to think that the crisis is is that they need a strong leader. But that's not the crisis. The crisis is they already have a strong leader. God is their leader, and they don't want to follow him. They keep turning to other gods instead, or in this case, they look to a man. God said no, so they look for someone who will do for them what God wouldn't and what only God can. And that expectation is a crushing burden. It's it's a recipe for disaster. When you expect someone to do what only God can do for you, woe to that person who has that burden on their shoulders, and woe to the people whose leader thinks he's strong enough to bear that kind of burden, who thinks he can do what only God can. So the relationship between Jephthah and the men of Gilead is off to a bad start before they even call him to lead. They're doomed to fail when they're still in the search committee phase. And actually, the broken relationship starts earlier than that. We saw in uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, how Jephthah, the son of a prostitute, was driven out of the land by his stepbrothers. They didn't want to share their inheritance with him. And this puts Jephthah in a place where the only road that seems open to him is to lead this band of of what the Bible calls worthless men in raiding and plundering, stealing from others to get what they need to survive. This doesn't excuse Jephthah's behavior. He's responsible for his own actions. But it does show that who he becomes and how his sinful nature manifests itself is, is shaped by how he has been treated. He represents his people well. In a sense, as the story unfolds, the Israelites' chickens are coming home to roost. He's treated them the way they've treated him, as if he's only of value when he's of use. So they go to Jephthah, and the scene is reminiscent of so many bad action movies from decades gone by. The guy who was too rough and tough around the edges for for them is now the guy they need. It's like Dirty Harry. You know, the the dirty cop who's too tough and manly for these straight-laced choir boy bureaucrats, uh, loose cannon breaking all the rules. He's now the guy that they need as their savior. Now that there's a real enemy, there's a dirty job that needs the Dirty Harry or Dirty Jephthah, or so they thought, or so they would have thought if they'd ever seen that movie. It wasn't released at this point. So Jephthah calls them out on this um, to his, well, I don't know whether it's credit, but um, he calls them out on on their actions here. Uh, Verse 7 in chapter 11, Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah's not wrong. It is shameful the way that they've mistreated him, took everything from him, and now they come crawling to him for help. Now he has value because he can do something for them that they need done. 
Either way, he's not a person. He is either an obstacle or a tool, something to get out of the way or something to be used for, for our own purposes. He's dehumanized either way. But now Jephthah, in return, treats them the same way. He's not interested in helping them until they offer to make him the leader of all Gilead. He'll help them out in exchange for political power and control. He's able to leverage their past sin against them to gain control over them. The whole leadership dynamic here is very, very broken. And this is a good time to stop and ask ourselves a few questions. Do we have the same breakdown in our own relationships, whether with leaders or with others? Do we expect people to do for us what only God can do for us? It's worth pointing out in an election season, uh, do we expect a political leader to deliver us from our enemies or somehow build the church? Um, do we, you know, it seems like a common theme we point out every year. Um, one side's the Antichrist and the other side's the Messiah. Is that how we view things? Or within the church, do we expect pastors and elders to do what only God can or be who only God can be? Uh, do we expect them to always be able to be there while God is the only one who's omnipresent? Uh, do we expect them to have all the answers, though God is omniscient alone? Or always be able to fix the problem, though God alone is omnipotent? Do we expect church leaders to be able to make the church grow rather than trusting God to give the increase? You know, as story after story surfaces of abusive and domineering pastors, is it any wonder in looking for a leader who will agree to do what only God can, churches find exactly what they're looking for, a leader with a Messiah complex. And as story after story surfaces of pastors burning out and leaving ministry of troubling statistics, is that any wonder? In the expectation that mere men do what only God can, uh, we set them up for failure. It doesn't have to be leaders, though. Uh, that's the focus in judges. Uh, pastors can throw those expectations back on their churches as well and expect the church to be what only God can, what only Christ can. Uh, but it can be anyone in our lives. Do we treat anyone like they only have value if they're useful to me? Do we reject people who get in the way of our agendas? Do we find in our relationships a, a subtle balance of negotiation, of mutual manipulation. How can I get what I want from you without giving you too much, without giving up too much? And like Jephthah, when someone mistreats us, is that an opportunity to leverage that blame, to get control, to get what we want from them? There are numerous ways we can uh, fall into the same traps here. And speaking of Jephthah leveraging blame, and that's a theme that comes back as we move forward in the story. Jephthah wastes no time stepping into his role as leader. Uh, he sends messengers to the, the king of the Ammonites, and uh, in verse 15 of chapter 11, he opens one of the message, messages with this phrase, Thus says Jephthah. Uh, it's a way the king would open a message, and it's a way that, of course, God speaks. Thus saith the Lord all over the place in Scripture. So Jephthah does not lack self-confidence, or at least the ability to put on an air of self-confidence. The exchange with the Ammonite king is interesting, and I won't go into every little verse here because there's a lot going on. But the king of Ammon 
in, chapter thir- in verse 13, he tries in a subtle way to open some peaceful negotiations. Uh, chapter 11, verse 13, And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peacefully. Now, he does accuse the Israelites of taking his land, but he asks for a peaceful resolution. And he also mentions these rivers as borders, which raises the topic of borders for negotiation. More than that, one of the borders he mentions is the Jordan River, which back in chapter 10 we saw the Ammonites have already crossed. So there's an admission of guilt here implied that here's a border of my land and I crossed it. So it's kind of a conciliatory gesture. But in response, Jephthah sends an explosion of words. His reply is, is part history lesson and part diatribe and even part expression of faith, oddly enough. To make a long story short, you can glance through the verses yourself if you have your Bible open, but uh, Jephthah replies that the land in question never belonged to the Ammonites. It used to belong to the Amorites, because, but because they opposed Israel on their way into the promised land, God obliterated them and gave that territory to Israel as well. Jephthah is correct. Uh, this is recorded in the book of Numbers. And Jephthah draws out an application for the king of the Ammonites. If God dispossessed the Amorites for opposing his people's claim to their land, he'll do the same to the Ammonites. So Jephthah is correct in his understanding here. And his message expresses genuine trust that God, God's word is true and that God will deliver his people and that God has promised this land to them. And so I think... This is why the author of Hebrews counts Jephthah among those who conquered by faith in Hebrews 11. But if we in the new covenant with the Spirit's indwelling presence can display both faith and unbelief at the same time, uh, how much more can Jephthah also display both faith and unbelief? You know, it's it's interesting to me, uh, thinking about how Jephthah is about to display unbelief, that The other major judges so far, Gideon and Deborah and Barak and even Othniel and Ehud, uh, they don't have this kind of negotiation with the enemy. We don't read any real exchange of words on this level. It seems like they just go and they fight. Jephthah seems to want to fight with words before he fights with swords. And I get the impression that it's not enough for him to see God's people delivered. He needs to establish who's right and who's wrong. Where the blame goes is really important. Uh, We'll come back to that in a moment. Just to summarize the story as we move on, as we saw last week, the Spirit of God comes upon Jephthah, enables him to win a stunning defeat over the Ammonites, but on his way to battle, Jephthah makes a tragic, unnecessary, and evil vow. He vows to sacrifice whoever comes out of his house first to greet him in exchange for victory. It's unnecessary because God had already given him his spirit at that point. Victory was certain. It's evil because the law of Moses says that a human sacrifice is an abomination. And it's tragic because, if you know the story, it's his own daughter, who is his only child, who comes out to greet him. 
And it's unnecessary to go through with the sacrifice because the law of Moses provided a way out by making an alternative sacrifice. And no one seems aware of any of this, and he does to her according to her vow. And it's disturbing, sickening even, that here we still see Jephthah driven to push the blame from himself to someone else. In chapter 11, look at verses 34 and 35. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. I can imagine... Jephthah's daughter thinking to herself, seriously, you're going to kill me and you think I brought you low? I'm the cause of great trouble for you? Jephthah's daughter, though, doesn't respond that way. She displays remarkable courage in saying, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. It's possible, uh, some have speculated, that she knew of his vow in advance and came out first to save the lives of others. That's a little bit of a speculation. What we can say for sure is that she's the only person in the story who has any real claim to blaming her troubles on somebody else, but she doesn't. She didn't learn that from her father. His ability to blame his own daughter, who he's about to kill, is stunning. The victim takes the blame. I'm also kind of stunned by his final recorded word to her. In the verses that follow, she, she asks for two months to go and lament with her friends before she faces death, and her father in reply just says, go. One word, go. It gives the impression that he's just he's done with her now. Uh, she's a cause of sorrow. She's no longer sparking joy. She can just go. And as horrific though, as the sacrifice of Jephthah's daughter is, that's not the end of the story. That's one tragic death. There are 42,000 more about to come. Look at verse, well, let's see, this is chapter 12 and verse 1. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? It's these troublesome Ephraimites again. Do you remember them from a few weeks ago when Mike was preaching through the story of Gideon? They pulled the same kind of thing with Gideon after Gideon had won a victory over the Midianites. They, they come and, you know, why didn't you invite us? And Gideon, different leadership style, smooths it over with a good ego stroking. Oh, you Ephraimites have done such amazing things compared to this one little victory that God has miraculously granted. That was nothing compared to you. In a way, Gideon sowed the seeds that are now bearing fruit in the conflict with Jephthah, that people have been trained to expect uh, a good ego stroking. Uh, it, it's almost like um, 
you know, when your kids have had too much grandparent time, and now you know that uh, some rebellion is, is coming. Jephthah is leading in the shadow of a predecessor who gave the people what they wanted. They've gotten used to being spoiled. So Gideon shows us one kind of bad leadership, and that's flattery. Jephthah's going to show us another, and that is domineering. Now, I have to say, though, if you've been in any kind of leadership, you can probably empathize with Jephthah here. Uh, he's won a spectacular victory, accomplished great things for his people, and he's sacrificed his own family to do it. And what does he get for his trouble? A horde of petty complaints from people upset that they didn't get an invitation, even though they've never shown signs of wanting to contribute before. But they're irate, and they want to burn his house down, and sadly for them, Jephthah had already burned his house down, so to speak. Uh, they've picked a fight with a fighter, and one that has nothing left to lose. And Jephthah's not the kind of leader that's going to stroke somebody else's ego. I'm not even sure he's aware of anybody else's ego but his own. He throws the blame back in their faces and gathers his army and attacks. And not only does he defeat them, but he allows no escape and takes no prisoners. Jephthah's men take control of the Jordan River, which the Ephraimites must cross if they're to get back to their own territory. They live on the other side of the river. And anyone wishing to cross the river has to say the password, which is Shibboleth. And the meaning of the word Shibboleth in Hebrew is unimportant. This is kind of a dialect thing. You know, different people in different places can uh, speak the same language, but speak it differently. It doesn't sound the same. You know, I grew up Oh, good, she's still here. I grew up in Ohio, and my wife, Rebecca, grew up one state over, just one state over in Pennsylvania. But in my version of English, you pull open a door, you swim in a pool, and you hang a flag on a pole, okay? In, in, in Becca land, uh, you pull open a door, you swim in a pole, and you hang a flag on a, two syllables, a pole. So the Ephraimites, much like the Western Pennsylvanians, speak a dialect that has become corrupted uh, in some way. Uh, I'm going to pay for this later. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that's right. In, in their case, anyway, for the, for the Ephraimites, uh, they can't make the sh, the sh sound in the word shibboleth, and so when they try, it comes out sibboleth. I guess it's kind of like a reverse lisp or something, I don't know. But the, the point is, Jephthah is methodically weeding out the Ephraimites for slaughter. So those who say sibboleth instead of shibboleth are killed on the spot, and as a result, 42,000 Ephraimites are killed. And that may not seem like a huge number compared to more recent wars in, in modern history, but 42,000 is still a massive loss of life by any definition and would have been a huge chunk of the Ephraimite population. It's more than their total population of that tribe in the book of Numbers, actually more than they had at the time of the defeat of the Amorites that Jephthah mentioned earlier when he was talking to the Ammonites. It's a bloodbath of a civil war. And you see what has happened here, right? They wanted a fighter to lead them, and that's what they got, only he didn't stop being a fighter after the enemy was defeated. 
His brokenness was useful to them against the Ammonites, but his brokenness is still there after it has outlived its usefulness. This is all Jephthah knows, is fight to protect himself, to take what he needs, to survive. And so when conflict arises, that's what he falls back on. What's the saying? When all you have is a hammer, every problem is a nail, right? I mentioned that in this tragedy, the the proverbial chickens have come home to roost. This is what I meant. How did Jephthah develop this character? It was the survival tactic he learned after they drove him out of his homeland. I'm not sure what trusting God would have looked like, but I know that's not what he did. Instead, he relied on his own ability to fight. And then the people rely on that same ability, and it burns them both. Again, he's responsible for his actions, but God has also given the people over to the consequences of their actions. God has judged them by giving them the leader they wanted. He disciplined them by giving them a leader who reflected their own idolatry back at them. The same reliance on earthly power, the same manipulative approach to relationships, the same self-centered outlook on life, the same ability, inability rather, to, to fully accept responsibility for one's own actions. There are plenty of ways we could learn from Jephthah's mistakes and the people's mistakes. We can learn that the kind of leader we desire reveals who or what we're really worshiping. In the church, do we want leaders who will do whatever it takes to get the job done? Maybe we worship efficiency and, and power, persona, charisma. Or do we want leaders who will point us to God knowing that God alone can build the church. We can learn that someone can be used by God in a powerful way and yet still commit horrific sins against his neighbor. We can't believe that celebrity pastor would do the things he's accused of. His books and sermons have been so helpful. Uh, But Jephthah could both save and slaughter his people. The most important lesson, though, in this text doesn't come from Jephthah himself. I mentioned last week that everyone in this story is horrible. I was wrong. That's not true. There's someone in this story who shows us a better way. We've mentioned her already, though we don't even know her name. It's Jephthah's daughter. Now, maybe she shares in her father's misconception that the sacrifice is necessary for deliverance and there's no way out of it. I can't imagine how she would know any better. Growing up outside of the land of Israel as the daughter of a crime lord, uh, she didn't exactly uh, go to Sunday school. It's mostly speculation, but I'm drawn to the idea that she knew of his vow beforehand and came out first to save the lives of others. Uh, Jephthah doesn't tell her what he had vowed to do. She already seems to know when he mentions, I have this vow I must fulfill. What I do know is that along with Jael and her hammer and tent peg and the the nameless woman who crushed Abimelech's head with a millstone and uh, possibly also the Levite's concubine whom we have yet to meet, Jephthah's daughter is one of a handful of women in Judges who point us to the coming Christ. It's interesting to me that uh, so many of the men who lead the nation in Judges point us to the need for a better deliverer through their various sins and character flaws. They show us what the Messiah will not be. Meanwhile, these women point us to the unexpected way the deliverer will save his people. 
And Jephthah's daughter shines like a jewel in contrast to Jephthah. You know, he seeks power for himself and takes every opportunity to justify himself by blaming others. She's the victim who willingly takes the blame. Her father places it on her. She doesn't deserve it, but she accepts it. Like a lamb, she opens not her mouth. All she asks for is space to lament and weep, and then she willingly returns to lay down her life. Christ our Savior defeated the enemy, crushed the enemy's head by laying down his own life. The sinless Savior died for sins that we had done, but willingly took that blame on himself. All we, like sheep, had gone astray, but the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He did not defend himself or protest his innocence. Like a lamb to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. He went with his friends to the garden where he wept and lamented, and then he went willingly to the cross to die. And as he died, he bore the wrath that we deserve. As he died, he washed away our sin and our guilt and our shame. As he died, he took the consequences of our failure to love God and our failure to love our neighbor as ourselves. As he died, he supplied the perfect obedience and perfect righteousness by which we who trust in Christ are counted righteous in the sight of God. As he died, he defeated death. As he died, he brought us life. And as he died, he showed us how to love. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Or to quote an old Rich Mullins song, love is found in the things we've given up more than in the things that we have kept. And Christ not only shows us how to love, but by his sacrificial death he frees us to love. We don't need to shift blame onto others to justify ourselves. The blame has already been shifted onto Christ, and we are justified. We don't need to manipulate others to get the things we want or the things we need. All we need is Christ. God, who gave us his own Son, will freely give us all things. All things are yours, Paul said to the Corinthians, the world and life and death and things present and things to come, everything is yours. God in Christ supplies your need. Freely you have received, freely give. Jesus said that people will know that we are his disciples by our love. And he didn't just mean because we're such warm and friendly people. He meant that we would follow his own example of sacrificial service for one another and for those around us. The world understands and expects jockeying for power and control. They understand looking out for your own interests above all. They understand blame shifting and manipulation. What's beyond understanding is a God who emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and was obedient to the point of death for people who didn't deserve it. What's unexpected is a church filled with people who give up their own preferences, advantages, resources, even lives for one another, who forgive one another rather than making sure the blame sticks to one another. A church that gives up the same for the sake of the world around us, loving our neighbor, going to them with the gospel 
caring for their needs, their spiritual needs above all. So what can we say? A failure to love neighbor stems from failure to love God, then the answer is a restored relationship with God, and only God can do this for us, not because we loved him, but because he first loved us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that while we were yet sinners, you sent your son to die for us. That you have loved us. What we need most of all is simply to receive the love that you freely give. And yet, so often, we think we need something else instead. We think your love is not enough, or we take it for granted and fail to see what a precious gift it is and fail to see how it supplies our needs. And so we look to other things. We place the expectations on others, and we manipulate and control and negotiate and seek to extort what we need out of those we think have it. And so we sin and we fail to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we fail to serve them. We fail to love one another as Christ loved us. And Father, help us. Show us where we are guilty of these sins. Help us to recognize how we, like Jephthah, like the Israelites, have gone after idols and how it has broken down relationships. And help us to turn from those idols to serve the true and living God. Help us to see in the cross and in the resurrection of Christ, the power of your love for us, undeserved, beautiful, all-consuming. Help us simply to receive this love that we may be transformed by it. And Father, as I think about our church, I know that we are not sinless and Pray that you would help us to grow, but I'm also thankful for all the ways that I can see your love bearing fruit in our care for one another and sacrificially laying down our lives or livelihoods or whatever resources are required for one another, simply resources of time and prayer pray that we would abound in this kind of love more and more, that it would be unmistakable that there is something going on here, something that only the gospel could be the cause of, so that both in our words and in our lives, we might point the watching world to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he might be lifted up, men might be drawn to him, and sinners be converted, and your name glorified. We ask these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.